Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for lovers of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. This week, we are bringing you preaching tips and tricks on Jeremiah 18, 1-11, the first reading for September 4th, 2022. And we have a special guest with us this week. That's right. Dr. Steve Davidson is the Dean of the Faculty and Vice President of Academic Affairs and a Professor of Hebrew Bible Old Testament at McCormick Theological Seminary. He's also an ordained elder within the United Methodist Church. A native of Trinidad and Tobago, Dr. Davidson earned his PhD in Hebrew Bible from Union Theological Seminary in New York. He's the author of multiple works, but he's working on something right now on the book of Ruth that we want you all to keep your eyes out for. In addition, he's published several times over at Working Preacher, and if you'd like to see more of his stuff, take a look over there. Dr. Steed Davidson, welcome to First Reading. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a great privilege to be here in this conversation. Oh, wonderful. We're so excited you're here. Can you can you talk to us a little bit just how did you become a biblical scholar? How did this path open itself up to you and you decided to follow it? Oh, oh wow. This is this is an interesting question. So one of the things I just finished writing was a sort of I guess I want to call it an intellectual autobiography. I trace my interest in sort of critical reading with the Hebrew Bible to the age of 13 when I had what I thought was a very striking question. What was the fruit that the man and the woman ate in the garden? Uh-huh. <laughs> Up until that point in time, I thought I knew the answer to the, to the question. Until I read the, the actual, actual Bible rather than children's Bibles. And then when <laughs> I read the actual, actual Bible, there was the answer that I thought was there was no longer there. You know, <laughs> so, so that created a little bit of crisis for me in my own, in my own thinking. Maybe about three or four years later, I was in an English class. We were reading Milton's Paradise Lost. And I realized, hey, oh, there's an answer here. And in fact, much of what I was reading in Milton was much more familiar to me than what was Uh, in the book of Genesis, the actual book of Genesis. (laughs) So so it did open up a a set of questions and concerns and inquiries for me. So so, so that's the the early story of curiosity, mm-hmm. trying to solve it. And I've been spending a lot of my, my adult life trying to solve that conundrum. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. You had the question, you went to the Bible, and then you also had the experience of realizing that what you thought you knew about this biblical text was actually this culturally mediated thing. That's very familiar, I think, to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Unfortunately, it is. And it's in, in some instances, uh, people do not get the help to actually name that mm. as, oh, this mm-hmm. is culturally mediated versus this is what it, you know, because all yeah. a lot of things pass under the rubric the Bible says. Right. That is <laughs> really not in the Bible. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, we, we are, as I said, we are just delighted to have you here this week to talk with us about Jeremiah 18. Would you please read the text for us and let us know what translation you're going to be using? Sure. I will read from the recently published NRSV updated version. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel 
has seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation, concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intend to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. Thank you so much. And I will be the first to pay for the audio Bible that you record. <laughs> I know, right? Well, one of, the, one of the things that we always love to do is to set the lectionary text as best we can in its historical and literary context. So I'm wondering, in terms of historical context, uh, Jeremiah is a very complex book and finds its home in, in different points of history. Do, do we have any sense of where or when this might have come from? This particular chapter feels so composite so that it, it would have come from various moments in, his, in the historical life of the book of Jeremiah. Certainly one of the things that we could talk about it is that it is pre-exilic, given the sense of all of the threats of some disaster to come, that, that this cluster of words may well have been picked up from that earlier period. The idea that there is a chance to repent and change, again, which we will want to say is an ethos that sits within the pre-exilic period. Mm -hmm. But you'll find some scholars who would want to go and, uh, and make this um, a little bit more post-exilic. Mm. My suspicion is that there are a set of ideas that are largely pre-exilic that have been edited and shaped within the post-exilic period in the form in which we have it here. Now, this, this passage is so dominated by this extended metaphor of a, a potter and a clay. What should we know about the ancient Near Eastern reality of pottery that might be helpful in understanding or even preaching this text? I think one of the things is to pay attention to the fact that this seems like an ordinary potter who would manufacture some very basic utensils for household use. That is to say, let's not think of this potter represented here in a sort of an artisanal type of a way. This is not somebody mm. who is making stuff that would be sold on Etsy. That he's actually working on some very regular household utensil, like lamps. Mm. It will be something that's for, for ordinary use, I would imagine, rather than something a little bit more elaborate. So we should not think like Jerusalem Farmer's Market on a Saturday morning. Yeah, tea. yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. And the activity that he's doing is sort of a routine. Mm -hmm. and, and despite that, despite having that practiced involvement with the product, yes, failure is going to come. 
mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I mean, I have never tried my hand at pottery, but I, I think even the most skilled potter will admit to failures over and over again, <laughs> even when they are producing stuff that they have already done before. The closest association I can make with this is with baking and baking bread with yeast yeah. and dough. It's that you could you could do it so excellently today. Yeah. <laughs> and if your technique is maybe a little bit off or the temperature is a little bit different, all of, you know, a bunch of different things, you could get a, a, a very different result. So yeah. 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 That's wonderful. And there's there's a lot of theology to mine there in the potential for a variety of outcomes in this yes. in this scenario. Yes. And then the other thing right. that strikes me is that as much as many of us see pottery as sort of this artisanal sort of thing, for folks in ancient context, these are images that would have been immediately familiar to the early readers and hearers of this type of prophecy mm. yes mm -hmm. yes yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's a familiarity there's not a lot of telling going on mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of explaining the processes because it's immediately familiar to the hearers mm -hmm. yeah in some ways this is almost like an embodied parable you know this is this is an action instead of a story do, do, do you think should we hear like a hearkening back to genesis 2 here where god is said to have formed humanity much like a potter forms a pot there is some connection here though i think rather than genesis kind of a helping to illuminate this passage i think this passage helps to illuminate the genesis 2 uh -huh. say what you mean by that all you have say in genesis 2 is this is this using of the term yatsar and there's no explicit Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a mention that this is like a like a potter that's forming etc so that the image is not very well filled out in genesis yeah. right here what you have it and you have the words right you have the yatsa term you know mm -hmm. the name for the potter and the, and the verb that's being used as well and then you you kind of get to see some of the processes a little bit a, a little bit the sense of of actually sitting at a wheel and doing the forming etc working with the clay and that sort of a thing. And I think what that does, it, it really brings a lot more light on Genesis chapter two on the mm. formation of the first human. Mm. So, so that's the connection I make. But yes, they are connected. I, I would definitely say, let's think of them together. Mm. Mm. Does that bring in Genesis three as well then? And this kind of discussion of sin? And... You should, in, in some ways. I would definitely want to look at stuff like that because certainly one of the things that this passage raises for me and this is one of several in the book of Jeremiah that does this, is, is the notion of theological anthropology, if you want to use that big word, at work here. How does this book understand human beings? Is uh -huh. it understanding human beings as inherently flawed? So flawed that human beings cannot do any good. Mm. Or is it that there is a capacity for good within human beings? And we, we see that in some aspects of the passage being raised, the, the implication that you could change and repent, right? That, that there's a way in which to change. I think the text is saying that you would kind of cease your evil and do mm. good, right? Mm -hmm. and there, in this passage of Jeremiah, there's room, there's, there's a sort of a conditional understanding, but we'll come across other passages where the, where the invitation to change doesn't exist because, mm. you know, it may just well be the presumption that you can't change. And the only thing that I can do is just destroy you. Mm -hmm. right. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, if you, if you pay attention to verse 12, which is outside of the scope of the passage, yeah. you see what I'm talking about. 
this sort of a you know very very pessimistic notion about humanity mm-hmm. or at least this group of human beings so whether all of humanity or not so from that perspective yes i would say let's have genesis chapter 2 into chapter 3 kind of conversations around mm-hmm. around this passage as well yeah R- related to that i'm struck by the interplay between the particularity of the audience for this passage in the references house of israel i think judah's mentioned in here and and yet there's an openness in this passage too where the voice of the lord is speaking of you know some nation if they're this way and turn that way i'll change change and treat them this way and if another people you know is one way and turn this way so i'm wondering what you what you make of that well, 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 certainly that that sort of evolution is something we see within within the book of of Jeremiah. If you, if, if you note that the house of Israel sort of an invocation happens in verse six alongside of the Potter image, and then we switch verse into verse seven, and that's where it becomes much more global, as you're pointing out. Mm. It goes into any nation, any kingdom, for, mm-hmm. in verses seven and verses eight, and the image of the Potter is not sustained. There is a, a sort of an evolution in God's concern. It expands into into this broader sort of a universal kind of a d- dimension. Here's one of my ideas about it being post-exilic. These universalist themes tend mm. to come from that time as well. But there is a way in which what you're raising about election is working on both sides here. Because by the time you get into verses 7 and verse 8, with the sense of it being global and universal, it's like, look, this is what God could do for any nation. Right. Mm-hmm. But you get back into verse 11 with a focus upon Judah and Jerusalem. It's like, okay, if this is going to happen to any anyone else, guess what? Worse <laughs> could happen to you. Mm-hmm. So there is an unsettling set of experiences being raised here. You're not that special, really. <laughs> but because you are that special, your punishment or your, your experience yeah. is going to be worse. Right. So it kind of It's works. the worst of all possible. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> So uh, uh, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm forming a sermon right now. Ele- <laughs> election does not imply exemption from the ways oh, that no. God interacts right. with humanity more broadly. And right. I'm starting into themes of ecology and climate change and just mm-hmm. the way, the things that impact how we as humanity walk through this world, we as creatures walk through this world, we shouldn't expect that any sort of special connection or relationship that we have with the Creator exempts us from the consequences of our behavior as we walk through the world. Right. And and, and in fact, I think think the book of Jeremiah is going to say, because of that, you are held to a higher standard. So I agree with both of you. I just am stuck in both metaphors that are used here. So the metaphors that are used are potter clay, and then implied farmer or gardener or planter and plant, right? And God accuses or or links really the the house of Israel and the house of Judah to being the spoiled clay and to being the plant that for whatever reason is not growing correctly or appropriately or fruitfully or whatever it might be. Doesn't it kind of suggest that like the fault ultimately lies in the potter or in the planter? How does a pot spoil itself? How does a plant grow itself incorrectly? I mean, is is my Lutheran just showing too much here? Or what what do we do with the fact that neither of these metaphors really lend themselves to 
giving a self-understanding of someone being able to change and being able to enact that change as a clay lump or spoiled pot or plant. Oh, no, I, 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 I would say just let the Lutheran loose at this, <laughs> at this point, because I'm, 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 I'm agreeing with you that there are some inconsistencies with the way the metaphor is working. I mean, I would separate what's going on in the first four verses from, from the rest of it, because mm-hmm. when you have these sort of enacted forms of prophecy, these embodied types of things, just, mm-hmm. let, the, just let the sign work rather mm-hmm. than trusting the comments on the sign so, mm. so the sign mm. is basically what's happening in verses one to four right mm. but because signs are inherently unstable and there are a whole bunch of different meanings we could give to them one of the mm. things we'll see in biblical text is maybe you know scribes recognize this and they're like uh-uh, we are going to tell you what this interpretation yeah. <laughs> there is only one interpretation and <laughs> it's the one we give you something we have to really be yeah. suspicious of, about When you look at what we're given as the interpretation, it really doesn't accord with the sign itself. Right. So you're correct that in some sense, if you have a potter and a clay and stuff is going wrong, yeah, a frustrated potter is always going to blame the clay, right? (laughs) Right? Or what do you say? The failed artist always blames their tools or or whatever it is. But you know, at the end of the day, it's the artist. It's the person who's Mm. doing the crafting at least has to bear some blame for what's going on. Hmm. Theologically, that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable here, right? Because we we have a sign that's more or less saying, Basically, God should be taking a lot more responsibility here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it almost lends itself to more of a post-exilic historical explanation or just this idea that this is less of a like call to change behavior than it is more an explanation or a reason to Israel and to Judah of what is currently happening. You are currently undergoing transformation because the pot was spoiled and needs to be reworked and it will be painful and it will be damaging in some ways. But I mean, that's almost where my my idea of a sermon would go is this kind of sense of like possible new life that comes on the other side of the reforming and the reworking that that you're currently undergoing. Well, following what you're saying, then what, what you have done is to take the metaphor and keep the focus on the potter rather than the clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think a lot of the sort of interpretive trajectories with this have put a lot more attention on the clay itself than on the potter. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm all struck by the way that the complaint that God has against the people in this passage is just so amorphous. <laughs> it's all it, yeah. all it says is, you know, change from your evil way. I wish I could tell from this passage what it was that God was so upset about. Do we get a sense from the wider context of Jeremiah, or is this just a sort of more generic prophecy? This one is more generic, but of course, you go through the, the rest of the book of Jeremiah, it's a grab bag of, of offenses. So, so the, 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 there are no ends of them. And, and, and of course, they range far and wide. And Ra'a is, is, is sort of, by this time, is fairly generic use in the book of Jeremiah and, and, and the sense of this calling back from it. And, and, the, ter- and the term Ra'a that's used there is not only in the indictment of the people and their leaders, but is also the term that's used for the the judgment that is portended here, that, yeah. that God mm-hmm. is intending to 
do ra'a, evil, to to the people. Mm-hmm. Although right. God might change. <laughs> right, right. So, so that's the that's the other sort of a slippery thing about this passage, because yes, there is room here for God to change God's mind, and it, it's not presented in a capricious sort of a way. But this is where our Lutheran system might get uncomfortable: <laughs> is that the the divine mind is sort of dependent upon human will, <laughs> right? I will change my mind about the disaster that I'm intended to you if. If that nation changes, so if the nation changes so that the humans are the ones in some ways within the frame that could have the capacity to change God's direction and pull God back from, from the evil. So there's an uncomfortableness here in the middle of the passage. The theology doesn't always sit with what we would want to think. I think this point you bring up about the real power that humans are given in this passage to affect the future is one of the reasons why I find verse 12 so fascinating and so heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, it's it's just a really sad, you know, we didn't include it in the reading, but to use the NRSV right after God says, you know, turn now all of you from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings, the people respond, which is unusual for this kind of prophetic literature that the, the people get this moment to respond. And I'm just curious, like, how do you read their tone in that response? Well, I, this, this, this is a, such an interesting thing. Why, Of course, that we know why that is going to be excluded from the lectionary portion. Yeah. We, can't right. say, we can't say thanks be to God after verse 12, <laughs> right? We could say it after verse 11. But, but again, here's another uncomfortable piece. that It's not dominant, but it's there. The uncomfortable thing is of people who would reject God. I mean, and of course, this is part of one of the complaints we'll see in Jeremiah, that God was just persistent in sending prophets and trying to reform the people, and they kept rejecting, rejecting. So this idea that the, that the people are going to reject God is not unheard of in the book. But what's unheard of is that you will actually see it in this, in this way. Now, Again, does this does this all flow together seamlessly? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But that it is put in here, maybe a way yeah. of saying this makes sense. Why, when you walk past Jerusalem, you see it in ruins? Because guess what? Mm. This is what the people said when God gave them the chance. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I I read that verse a, a little bit differently in right. in that I didn't read it as the actual response of the people but more sort of in the pessimistic voice of the prophet saying, you know, God says change, but this is what you're going to say in response. It's almost like a a rhetorical move of preemptive shaming. Like, Mm -hmm. I can anticipate Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. this is how you're going to respond with some nonsense about we can't can't change, we just have to keep doing evil. In other words, there's no excuse. Don't give me that lip because I'm already wiping that off the table. And if we go in that direction, then, then it also raises the sort of crises that emerges within the prophets. The sense of it's hard to get a hearing and it's hard to get a response. Mm-hmm. So in your interpretation, Tim, there is this sort of an internal conversation that's also happening that's saying, huh, I might anticipate that they will actually not say yes. And it, and it does create a sense of crisis because, you know, most of the prophets were not very successful. 
yeah. and convincing the people to do what ne needed to be done. It's the later generation that recognized, oh, wow, they were actually guiding us in the place we should have gone if, yeah. if only our ancestors right. had paid attention. Which is probably uh, why right. we still have their words with us. I mean, if, if people yes, had responded right. and said, oh, yeah, well, let's change. Oh, yeah. And the, right. and the disaster right. didn't come, then yeah. who would yeah. pay attention to that, you know, yeah. doomsaying right. of the past, you know? Right. We should probably take a turn just for sake of time towards preaching pitfalls or preaching angles. But before we do, I just want to throw on one little thing. The, uh, the beginning of that verse 12 is the Hebrew word noash. And if you look up the Hebrew word noash, it's a, a nifal participle. And uh, halot, which is one of the you know preeminent Hebrew dictionaries, oh, just translates it damn with an exclamation point. <laughs> so I don't know where they got that from, but I kind of love that preachers if you want to use that in your sermon. <laughs> So yeah, so so preaching pitfalls. One of the ways that this strikes me is it seems like it would be an easy sermon to preach to say, therefore, be good, change for the better, and God will be nice to you, and you know, don't keep doing what you're doing, or God's gonna bring down the hammer on you. And sure. that that sort of Deuteronomistic behavior equals judgment equation. I wonder if there might be more helpful ways of thinking about how to bring this into a homiletical environment. Tim, what you did, what you just described, I think, is the kind of a sermon you preach when you're when you're coming at it on the eleventh hour. So, so yeah. if, you're, if you're preparing your sermon at the eleventh hour, that's kind of where you go because that's easy. That's that's that's, that's so routinized, and you could make it happen. So, I think the pitfall to avoid is don't wait until the last moment. Yeah, but yes. I know easier easier said than done. Well, hey, preachers, um, we're giving this to you two weeks ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, first readers, you're getting it. Right, yeah. So as our conversation has shown, there's a lot of complexity yeah. that's here. And, and let's not try to flatten this into a simple act consequence, because I, I know there's a lot of preaching out there that feels that way, particularly coming through the pandemic. Oh, we've gotten this awful stuff because we have been we have been sinful. The nation has been sinful. We have not been this, and this is God's punishment to us and these, these kinds of consequences. Yeah. I mean, and I'm putting it in a very crude way because... You know, I may go to a church that will say it in that way, but there are different, there are more sophisticated ways of people saying the very same, the same yeah. thing. And we should very, yeah. very much avoid that notion of just the simple act consequence relationship. So that calls us to be a little bit more, I think, proactive and, and then asking, what do we do with an image of, of the potter and the clay? One of the things, of course, for us to, to pay attention to is to not confuse this particular passage with, with others, others within mm. the book of Jeremiah, or even say Isaiah. So, so, so for instance, Isaiah 64, 8 has a stronger and I think much more popular verse, you know, but now Lord, you are our father, we are the clay and you are the potter. Uh... That, that verse, you know, because it now it gets tied into a hymn and all of that sort mm -hmm. of a thing. That, that springs up in people's imagination. And so preaching this text requires you to be aware of that and to give Jeremiah 18 its, its integrity. And, and like, I mean, I'm not ultimately saying, you know, just ignore Isaiah, but there may be ways within which the Isaiah passage might be illuminating for this, but try not to make it the dominant focus. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I would say for preachers is, if you're working with, with chapter 18, then I think make a clear decision as to whether or not you can competently handle what I would call the two sections of the passage. I think mm. one to four 
has its own sort of integrity that you could work with. And then yeah. five to 11 is another. Bringing the two of them together is going to be quite difficult. Trying to preach the entire 11 verses as a unit is going to be difficult. I'm not saying don't do it because, you know, there may very well be the sophisticated preacher who can achieve that. Can, can we circle back to that for just a moment? Just so I'm clear on the distinction that you're making between those two sections. One was the, the sign itself and the other is sort of an interpretation, one particular interpretation of the sign. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it will be then, oh, let me just give myself the opportunity to pull out multiple meanings out of this sign that might be relevant for the congregation yeah. that I'm preaching to. Right. It's the freedom to kind of loosen up these reference from, well, oh, it's yeah. just us, it's just God. Just, can, I, can I throw something out there? Because yes. I'm listening right now to a book by Amy Jill Levine mm -hmm. on the parables of Jesus. And that's yes. what stood yes. out to me is yes. like, Anytime you think you have a parable nailed down, you've got it wrong, right. you know, because there's an inherently unstable element to parables that re resists being clearly locked in. And so what I love about what you're saying is you're almost offering preachers the freedom to say, sit in the parable in yep. verses one through four and see what interpretations come out, mm -hmm. allow the succeeding verses to be one of those interpretations, but but maybe play with some of the freedom yeah, here. And I just, right. I just love that idea. Yeah, yeah, that sounds yeah, like a great yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. And and be, I, I guess we will surprise ourselves if we give, give ourselves that. Yeah. That's delightful. I don't think we've ever accomplished both preaching pitfalls and preaching angles in one point. But oh. I feel like <laughs> we just kind of did that. <laughs> well, in our, in our last few minutes here, is there anything else that we want to add as far as tips for preachers who want to form a sermon from one or both parts of this text? I just love the idea of thinking of verses one to four as a parable and verses five to 11 as a sermon, one mm -hmm. sermon mm -hmm. on this mm -hmm. parable, you know, mm -hmm. and then, and then kind of branching off there from different places. I also really love verse 12. I don't know <laughs> if it's just like the Enneagram four, like the, the hopelessness that draws me to it. But if you picture it as like a despairing people who recognize they're being given an opportunity here and cannot for the life of themselves find a way to grasp that opportunity. Mm. I think there's something really powerful about sin or even just about, you know, the way we find ourselves in this world, doing the things that we know we should not do that could almost breathe a word of hope into that. Mm. It's almost an instance of the law functioning as gospel, naming the thing that yeah. you cannot bring yourself to do. So if you if you're not feeling playful, if you're feeling dark, <laughs> first readers, that could be a, a direction to go for a sermon. Yeah, well, that's quite interesting. Um, the thing I would also want to pay attention to here is the predominance of the the image of clay and its slipperiness, and then when it eventually becomes into something, its brittleness. Mm -hmm. Because certainly when we get into chapter 19, we're going to start seeing a, an image that will come up quite often in Jeremiah, pottery gets invoked quite a lot just simply because it, it could be shattered mm -hmm. and, and and it can be destroyed. And, and there are ways within which that, that image serves a very, very searing place within, within the book of Jeremiah for, you know, for all forms of and different kinds of destruction. But, but, but here we're sort of in this sort of a very formational type of a place. And, 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 I, and I think there are ways in which for preachers to spend some time looking at the reality of the slipperiness 
of play. And, 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 and if you go back to our earlier conversation of the connections with Genesis chapter 2 as a sort of a metaphor for the human condition, because it can be very easy for us either to preach this sermon from a very condemnatory point of view where we're pointing fingers at other people for their failures. I think, Tim, you, you mm-hmm. were pointing to some of those earlier. Or we can preach it from a, from a perfectionist type of perspective mm-hmm. where that which is produced is good and perfect and right. And, and, and therefore, <laughs> it, is, it is immune from its evil. It's saved mm-hmm. from evil. There is something that's compelling about, about clay in all of its slipperiness and all of its dirtiness and its muckiness and, and with its potential to, yeah. to become that which is useful. I mean, ultimately, you'll get, you'll get, you know, Paul saying, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Yeah, um, it, you know, it's This ordinary thing that then becomes this way to house something that's a whole lot more I think we want a note of hope from this passage that that might be one place to go that that clay is not yet set there is a Mm -hmm. there's a possibility Mm -hmm. of of change it's Mm -hmm. it's not Mm -hmm. brittle it's malleable it has flexibility Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so even though you may be on this trajectory the very fact that God is sending prophets to you to say hey (laughs) go a different direction is an offer of hope, an offer of mm-hmm, possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. there's something in the image yeah. of clay itself, just the, the tangible image, the sign of clay that, that lends itself to that sort of reading. Yeah. 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 All, uh, I would also just add, this is not a very highly exegetical take on this passage, <laughs> but I'm struck by this in the prophets generally, and, and in this image in particular, the intimacy of it. If we do assign mm-hmm. sort of the role mm-hmm. of, of potter mm-hmm. to the Lord and yeah. clay to the yeah. people, it's, a, it's an intimate image. And I think so often in much mm-hmm. contemporary religious society, there's the sense of God, a God who's out there somewhere and doesn't really pay much attention to what's going on with us. But the, the God that's portrayed here is intimately involved in helping to shape the nature and future of the people, mm-hmm. a God who cares, who's involved, yeah. who is responsive to the change in behavior of the people. Yeah. So it's not a yeah. distant God in this in this text. It's a very imminent deity in this text. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And there's a, there's a level of love in that, which I think can get lost. I think you're right, Tim, to bring out the tenderness of that sort of closeness of God in this passage in the first four verses, especially. Yeah. 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 So certainly what I like in this direction that you're going is it's the idea that this is not an assembly line mm. where, <laughs> where yeah. here, here you're going to create these vessels according to this template. And the ones that don't work, we just throw them out until we get it right. But it is reworking the clay until mm. that particular lump of clay kind of a fulfills where its beauty shines out <laughs> yeah, right and and, and, it be, and it becomes that so that each is different and, it's, and unique in its in its own way so that so that's the intimacy i'm picking up that you're referring mm. to yeah mm. like i say it's a it's a bit peripheral to the the thrust of the passage but i think mm-hmm. there's a lot of people sitting in churches who need to yeah. hear need to hear that that yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, mm-hmm. that god actually has them in mind and in hand in, in hand. hand yes yeah. mm-hmm. and is is mm-hmm. wanting to work with them like a potter works with clay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. beautiful well i can't think of a better note to end on 
Dr. Steve Davidson, it has been so delightful to have you on today. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. This turned out to be a whole lot more than I anticipated. So this is good. Yeah. It, it no, usually it turns out that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, friends, thanks so much for listening to another episode of First Reading. If you'd like to hear more, you can find us on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. There we have all of our back episodes and information about our guests and our hosts. And we also have, you know, all the fun stuff, merch page, ways to donate to help keep the first reading sustainable. We're grateful to all those who give generously to help us keep going. And we're especially grateful to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that they've given us along the way here. Thanks this week to Blue Dot Sessions for some extra music behind the reading. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Blessings, Clay Jars.